I'm always very careful in my wording because I want to make sure that the attention is going to the right place. Um, but let's put our hands together in, in appreciation to God who has talented this group so much and for his empowerment for them to steward it so well in leading us in worship. Thank you, team. That was fantastic. Well, I got some good news and I got some uh, bad news this morning. Um, the good news is after seven months since April, uh, last week, apparently when I wasn't here, Chris finished the last six verses of 1 Peter chapter 5. So after seven months, we're done with chapter, with, uh, chapter 5 and then thus all of 1 Peter. So big sigh of relief, a great feeling of accomplishment, you're done uh, and you're good to go. Bad news is we had one week between our Advent uh, sermon series and First Peter finishing, and so Chris Legg, our senior pastor, our lead pastor, uh, said, well, Paul, why don't you just do a one-time sermon over the entire book of First Peter? <laughs> so that's the bad news. If you thought you were done with it, you're not quite getting away from it all the same, but there's more good news because uh, Chris isn't here, so <laughs> we don't got to do what he says. We can do whatever. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, what we are going to do uh, is, is even, he wasn't here today and he wasn't here a lot this week. And it was really on Tuesday um, when we were preparing to record our podcast without him um, that John and I were talking. And, and I had put together already some thoughts and I'd started working on uh, expounding kind of a sermon outline of how I could take us through an entire narrative when really it was getting to the main passage that Peter himself says, says, this is the purpose of why I wrote this book. Um, I, I really was struck with this next kind of moment of, of conviction of the level of, of applying that. Um, and so I kind of was talking through that with John. John was like, that is exactly what we're going into, into the Advent season. Um, so let's go ahead and modify it and just, yes, to make the pastor happy, um, we'll go ahead and do a super quick fly-through so that we can really bolster that main idea and understanding of what Peter is, is trying to accomplish with his book. And then, uh, instead of spending all our time in Peter, we're going to move the majority of our time um, and we're going to reflect on Psalm 130, which we just finished singing together. So that's how it's going to go. So quick fly-through review. Um, one of the first uh, commentators I went to um, when coming to this was a guy named Dr. James Slaughter. He has uh, an article that he had written on the five motifs or, or um, kind of underlying repetitive things in First Peter. Um, of those, he highlights that Peter is stresses the believer's behavior, the believer's unfair circumstances, the believer's deference, the believer, believer's motivation by Christ's example, and the believer's anticipation of a future glory. And reading that list, and after spending seven months in Peter, it sounded really good. He actually concludes it. He summarizes it all together, these points, by saying this, the behavior of believers when they encounter unfair circumstances reflects a spirit of deference in all relationships as they follow Christ's example and anticipate future glory. That's pretty good. I like that summary, as far as the summary goes over the, again, motifs or the messages that are presented through First Peter. Um, this is always a scary point because I would say uh, I think that, um, uh, that Dr. James maybe missed or, or did not quite highlight, and I'm going to go with that um, because it's always a little scary for me to be able to say, oh yeah, the doctor with the big fancy degree and all the things, he missed this. That'd be like us saying, you know, I could have thrown that better than the quarterback of that professional team. Yeah, not the case. But in it, he makes a small kind of nod, almost, and that's what it is. It's almost just this nod to grace. Um, 
And, and maybe it is that he thinks grace is an underwritten uh, understanding that affects all of these things, but I don't know if he quite gave it justice because I think if we read 1 Peter all the way from start to finish and we walk away not overwhelmed with God's grace, then we're reading Peter wrong. It's on us. I think if we rightly understand and read Peter for what the message that he's saying, we have to walk away with this unfathomable, unattainable, amazing gift that is God's grace for his people. And so that's where um, I, I kind of decided then to, to highlight instead, walk through First Peter and see these instances where grace is pops up, where grace is expounded, and really where God's grace is presented as a resource to the believer, a believer's resource. Um, because again, I think if, if we walk into this and we come away with a different message than what Jesus said himself to Paul in Paul's writings, my grace is sufficient for you. If we walk away missing that, then we're going to miss Peter's point. So what, what kind of things do we see about grace in First Peter? Well, right off the bat, we don't even get through verse 2. He gets an introduction in one and then to say who he is, and he says who he's writing to, the elect, and then we don't even get past verse 2 without him acknowledging two things about God's grace. One, that it is God's grace that chose us. That's in the first half of the verse. And then the second, that it is his grace extended to us for our participation, for us to experience. This is his doing. First Peter 1, 2 said, "...according to the foreknowledge of God the Father..." in the sanctification of the Son for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, what he accomplished, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, what we get to experience. Not only is grace then presented as coming from God, but also in chapter 1 we see grace as the source of giving confidence. And we see the believer's confidence coming from the God's given grace. It says in one ten that the prophets foretold of these good news of this good news, and that in one thirteen the two advents of Jesus um, really supply God's grace to the believer. The first being when He came, and then He suffered and died, and then was resurrected for the sake of us putting our faith in Him. Grace was allotted to us, and it will come again in the second advent um, when He has His ultimate glorification that we are brought up with Him and glorified alongside of Him. Both these things are the measure of God's grace given to us. And essentially, it's the end of the story, right? That's oftentimes how we have confidence. You don't have confidence when you don't know. And there's a lot in life we don't know. But there's one thing that we do know, and we know how it's all going to end. It's going to end with his glory. And if he was glorified in his suffering, so then we can expect ultimate glorification after our time is allotted in suffering in this world. And so that's what it has. Grace gives confidence. Also, another thing that grace does is uh, that an interesting aspect of grace is that we actually have the ability in our conduct to testify the goodness of God's grace. This is part of his experiential sovereignty of giving us grace is he actually allows us not only to experience it, but he allows us to testify to his good gift of grace to us. This is what it says in 2.19, for this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is how he addresses servants. This is also the same way of how he addresses husbands and wives. This is why in 3.7, the husband is reminded that we are all recipients of God's grace. Thus, then, we should have right conduct to testify to that appropriately. Grace can be testified by our conduct. 
On that line of conduct, it's another, a couple other things that are interesting that grace produces. Another one is grace perfects character. Grace perfects our character. That we actually have an ability to, to attain character righteousness because of his grace and his work in us. In 4.10, grace is seen as the source of service. For as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Grace is also the source of humility in 5.5. 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so grace perfects character. And one of the other things of character that grace affects is grace allows for courage. Grace gives courage to the believer. This is why in, in 5, 8, and 9, we are told not to fear the devil that is going around like a prowling lion waiting to steal, kill, and destroy. Why would we not fear that? Well, because we have God's grace. This is why in verse 10, God's grace is at work accomplishing all of these things and then supplying our ability to resist the devil. This is a gift of grace. Grace allows for courage. And this is why, going through all those kind of points and walking through each chapter building up, this is why I think after Peter has established all of this, then he is able to summarize the whole book in his words to us. The purpose statement of Peter is actually written by Peter and given to us. And it happens in 5.12, the later half of, of uh, verse 12 of chapter 5. He says this, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Why, what have I written? Why have I written? I've written to you, declaring that this is the true grace of God. So what? Stand firm in it. Acknowledge the grace of God and stand firm in it. I think re reordered, one could simply say, there is suffering in this life, so stand firm in God's grace. I think if we were to walk over all of what happened in 1 Peter and take the entire message, I think we can walk away with that, is that in this time, there will be suffering, but good news, we get to stand firm because there's a God who has given us grace. Now, now we're done with the good news part three, I guess. We're on our third good news. Um, we're done recapping Peter. Um, so if you're just here to, to get exposed to what the senior pastor wanted, uh, you can go head to an early lunch. You heard the Peter part. Um, so we're good to go on that. Um, and frankly, there's a little bit of me that would, would have loved continuing to do that. Um, would have loved taking those five points and refining them and making them into alliteration and then building them out a little bit more and, and getting to just present that. Um, and I honestly think uh, because that felt more comfortable to me. Because what felt uncomfortable, and what I was telling John about on Tuesday, what started feeling very uncomfortable is when I looked at this message, when I looked at this message of suffering is coming, stand firm in God's grace, I really got to the place of like, well, what now? What now? What do you do with that now? And unfortunately, I'm at the same conclusion that Peter comes up with in the beginning is that there then is nothing to do but to wait for the Lord. He's the whole point of Peter, again, is he's the one who's offered grace. He's the one who's done all this work. He's the one uh, who gave himself on a cross for the propitiation of our sins. He's the one who's done all these things. And thus, when we know the end outcome, we can have confidence, but it still means we're waiting on him to do what only he can do, which is to put this messed up world right. 
He is the judge that can do it. And so then when we have this truth, this realization to stand firm in his grace, I think the only thing we have is to wait on the Lord. And this is why I'm confessing this, because I'm not very good at waiting. I'm not very good at waiting at all. Um, this may also be influenced in the fact that I took my family to Disney World the week before Chris preached last Sunday, where you just rush from one place to the other to do what? Wait in a line. I'm not very good at waiting. Uh, and I don't think I'm the only one. I think a lot of us can understand, right? We're going to finish this sermon. We're going to um, say goodbye to everybody. And then we're going to be like, oh, yeah, well, where do we want to go uh, grab a bite to eat? That sounds like fun. Let's go out to eat. And then you know what no one says? No one says, you know what I'm in the mood for right now? A really long line to wait in. That sounds good. Let's go to the restaurant that is the busiest. So I have to wait a long time in line. No, nobody says that. Because again, it's waiting. It's something in our disposition, something we've been trained with to have the instant gratification. Waiting is a hard thing. It was really funny. I was recounting this with a friend of mine on the phone this week, um, and he laughed because he literally, he was like, I'm pulling into church's chicken right now because I drove past Chick-fil-A because the line was too long. Thus, I'm getting church's chicken, in which I rebuked him. And I said, if you don't have the patience to wait for the Lord's chicken, then surely... Surely you're missing out on God's providences and provisions in your life. No, you'll get a kick out of that. But what is it? What is it to wait on the Lord? And so then what I wanted to do is finish our time in this conversation of really kind of talking through, um, talking through this psalm, Psalm 130, um, a psalm that, again, I think hopefully will be, uh, has been greatly convicting to me, and I hope the Lord will do the same for you. And at the same time, as convicting, I hope, also comforting. So let's do this. Uh, in reverency of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to be re reading Psalm 30. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you and you want to grab one out of the rack, it's going to be on page 518 of the um, Bibles in the chairs. Uh, if you're following along on your phone, we're going to be in the ESV version, or you can look along on the screen. A Song of Ascents, Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark inequities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, yes, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Lord, grant us clarity of thought as we consider your word this morning. Holy Spirit, mold us and make us, fashion us and change us, teach us and instruct us. For our confidence is in the fact that your word never returns void. So, Father, let us consider your word and glorify you all the more because of it. Amen. You can have a seat. Talking to many people, even again in preparation for the sermon, one of the constant things that I kept getting back was, um, oh man, Psalm 130, that's my favorite psalm. Or man, of all of them, if I was going to make a top five list, that one's definitely, oh, it's way, 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 way up there. 
And if that's you this morning, uh, then I'm glad that we get to consider one of your favorite psalms. Um, and also know you're uh, in good company. Um, actually, this psalm has had uh, quite a remarkable impact on church history. Um, and there's a whole bunch of, of people and early church fathers and theologians that cited this as their favorite. Um, even all the way back to St. Augustine, um, he, he cited this of all the psalms as his favorite psalm. Um, so did John Calvin. Um, he cited this as his favorite as well. Martin Luther loved it so much that he composed it into a hymn. He felt like he had to paraphrase it, but really didn't add anything to it. He just rewrote it and then said, there's nothing more to add. That's, that's the hymn. That's what I put out there. Even, interestingly enough, John Wesley, if you recognize that name, um, who was a traveling preacher uh, during the awakening, he was going around. He was actually already years into his preaching ministry. He was preaching and going around seeking conversions and saving of the lost, um, and he decided to take a Sunday and attend a service at St. Paul's Cathedral, which would have been different than the tradition that he came in. And it was there that they sang Luther's hymn, and he was so moved by the question, who could stand before God, that in that moment he realized his own need for a Savior and put his faith in Christ for the first time, a couple years into his preaching ministry. So see, there's still hope for John. No, the other John. See, John, other John. It was this. John Owen. That's the guy up in the top right. A lot of people don't know about John Owen. Um, John Owen, he as well cited this psalm as the first time that he really led to an intentional, experiential access to God. Again, a man who'd gone around preaching um, for years, and this is what he writes. I preached Christ some years when I had but very little, if any, experimental acquaintance with access to God through Christ. Does that sound like a man unsure? Yeah, in his preaching, that's how he felt about his access to Christ. Until the Lord was pleased to visit me with sore afflictions, whereby I was brought to the mouth of the grave, and under which my soul was oppressed with horror and darkness. But God graciously relieved my spirit by a powerful application of Psalm 130. He goes on to say that Psalm 130 was the first time that then he comfortably accessed God through Jesus Christ with the understanding of this message. So this is, if this is one of your favorites, you're in great company, and we get a joy of considering it together. So what we're going to do is we're going to do our typical fashion. Um, we're going to go back, and we're going to take some sections out, and we're going to re-look through this um, and highlight some things, nothing because it's going to be all that illuminating, but really just to uh, consider rightly what's before us in God's Word. Um, a lot of commentaries split this up into four sections, kind of going by each couplet all the way through. I'm for brevity. I'm only going to split it into two, really, so that we can get the message. So we'll start with part one. Part one is going to be verses one through four. And the, the highlight that I want to get, the message I want to get from part one to not miss is that God saves those who don't deserve it. God gives, God saves those who don't deserve it. Listen, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. We start with this fascinating uh, euphemism here, out of the depths. Um, through Hebrew writings, one of the most uh, repetitive connotations with the depths or out of the depths comes in association with water, out of the deep waters, out of the depths of the waters. Um, the Hebrews weren't very fond of water. In fact, they were much more successful uh, in the desert than on the boats, um, which we can see across Scripture. Uh, but really, what water sig signified for them was a chaos, an uncertainty, an unknown, um, and that's the imagery that it had. In fact, this is why if we went way back to Genesis 1, 
um, when it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and it was full of darkness, well, then what? It says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the deep waters. This idea of it was chaotic, it was untamed, it was dangerous, it was dark, and what it needed? It needed God to put right. It needed creation. And so, again, this, this phrase has this connotation of a deep, dark, scary place of danger and despair. It is by no means a light phrase, out of the depths. I think it's interesting, or at least fascinating, that we don't get more from the psalmist on his condition of being in the depths. We don't really know why he's there. We don't know what crisis he's facing. It doesn't illuminate that for us. All we know is his situation. I'm in the deep depths. Now, some guests, looking forward to verse 8, that they're thinking he's under enemy prosecution, and that may be true, um, but I think it is, again, even more fascinating that he doesn't doesn't make that specific tie-in, lest we be tempted to say, when I experience a a crisis like that, then I apply God's Word. But no, now we just have this beautiful blanket statement that whenever we experience the depths, the deep, dark stuff, the hard crisis, the bad things going on, whenever we experience that, good news, we have God's Word right here to turn to with what to do. And so what is it? What is one of the things that the psalmist does when he cries out from the depths? Well, the first thing is that. He cries. He cries out to the Lord. This word sometimes translated supplication. Really, I like cries here better because it has such an emotional state in its Hebrew. It's an emotional word. It's a big word. It's a strong word. Um, It's the earnest, heartfelt prayers. Uh, It's a deeply personal all the fibers in your body connecting to pray. This is what the, this kind of crying out is. One of the uh, pastors that I was reading on about this said, this isn't you praying for the random lady you heard about in Sunday school class who's struggling to pay rent. This is you on a street corner with nowhere to go and no money to buy housing for your family. This is that type of prayer. This is that type of crying out. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. In simple terms, he's saying to the Lord, hear me, answer me, help me. Hear me, answer me, help me. How great it is that we have a God who models this, who says from his children, here's what I want for you. I want you to call out asking me to hear you. I want you to call out to me asking me to answer you. And I want you to turn to me asking me to help you. And that's what the psalmist does. That same pastor I referenced earlier talks about this as the psalmist's 911 call. Um, This is him saying his location and immediately asking for help. This is an urgent thing. I'm in a bad spot and I need help. This made me think of uh, Jonah, made me think of Jonah uh, calling out from the depths of the water. That's probably why I made the initial connection. From the depths of the water inside the belly of the whale, right? There's a lot of pictures I thumbed through to put up there, including my daughter's own Jesus Storybook Bible one. Um, that one's a little bit more aggressive than the one in the kids' Bible. But when we're talking about deep despair, I, I'd never seen this picture before, and I really liked it because this is it. The Lord delivered Jonah to himself when he was fleeing from God and his ways. And so he brought about this great fish to swallow him up after he's been cast aboard. And just so that in that moment, in that deep despair, bringing him to literally the deepest despair of the deepness of waters, so that what? So that Jonah would cry out to God. And, I'll, and again, I'll make a confession at this because... 
Um, I, like Jonah, sometimes am so slow to call out to God. Sometimes it needs the crisis of life that big before I get to the crying out with all my being. Because too many times I think, oh, well, I, I'll get through this. I'll pick myself up by the bootstraps. I know it'll be fine. Or I'll just logic my way through it. This is just a season. It's a cycle. It'll happen again. I'll get through this. But instead, no, saying the Lord has invited me to call out to him, to ask him to hear me, to ask him to answer me, and ask him to help me. And so here this is. In one of the deepest places, the psalmist also gives the deepest truth. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Who could stand? This is why I miss it. Because there is no picking me up by the bootstraps. There is no me just kind of muscling my way through this. Because in fact, I'm not the one capable of doing this. The Lord has tallied up all the iniquities. Who could stand? The answer is no one. This is rhetorical. No one can stand human alone before a holy God. If God is taking count, then we all fall short. I was reminded again of rereading this, of Jesus' illustration when he was talking about uh, two men going up to the temple to pray, right? It's in Luke 18.10. Two men are going up to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, one's a tax collector. Um, Look at the Pharisee's response with me. He says, the Pharisee, verse 11, stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. This this Pharisee apparently was not remembering this psalm because he's saying, he's making a performance standard of saying, yeah, 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 there's bad people, but at least I'm not that bad. I I, I get some of this on my own level. Like, I kind of deserve some of this grace because you know what? There's some worse people here, and including that guy over there, that tax collector, he's worse. This is one of the temptations that we want to look at our lives and think we will stand right before God because we're at least not that bad. We know worse people. Or the flip-flop, just want to stand before God and say, I deserve grace in front of you because I've attained something. I've achieved. It's not just look at the vices in other people's lives that I haven't committed, uh, but look at the virtues in my life that I have committed. And look how that earns me favor. That's why he continues in verse 12. The Pharisee says, I fast twice a week and give tenth of all that I get. But what, what is the right posture before God? Is it? Well, I'm not as bad as those guys, and at least I did some good things. So now surely I can stand before God? No. The right posture is verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus' words, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. I think this is the right response when we look at a God, a a holy God, and His perfect standard, is we must see ourselves as the lowest of lows, unworthy of any of His favor and grace. And this verse would be one of the most disappointing verses in Scripture if it ended with that half. But luckily, it continues in verse 4 with one of the best transitional words in Scripture, but, but God. Who could stand? 
no one but God. God is going to be an act and he can do something. It says in verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. No one is free from sin, but God can do what only he can do, which is to give it to us by his earning, not ours. No one can stand, but God forgives. Charles Spurgeon, in um, his sermon on this, famously delivered in London many, many years ago, um, Charles Spurgeon was known to have a deep, booming voice, and so I don't know if this is how he presented it, but it is how it goes in my mind. Speaking on this very truth of forgiveness, he says, Thou hast not gone beyond his mercy. Thou canst not go beyond his mercy if thou wilt trust his Son. There is forgiveness. Let this whisper drive away despair. What a blessed whisper it is. There is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. Let it enter thy soul and drive those grim ogres and hobgoblins of despair away into the sea of forgetfulness. There is forgiveness. I like that. And I think we should use hobgoblins more often in sermons. <laughs> I'm challenged and inspired. There is forgiveness. This is again the theme of the first four verses. God saves those who don't deserve it. And this is the tee up for the gospel. This is what the psalmist is doing here. He's done two key things when it comes to our understanding of the gospel. One, he has confessed his sin. And then two, he has identified himself with the Savior. And this is ultimately what our call is this morning. We'd be in neglect if we just rushed through this and didn't stop for a moment and then ask, in the stillness of your heart, in this morning, when you think, is there any remote darkness or despair that still lingers in you because you're still not sure of the question, am I redeemed? Will I get to be with he in heaven with God forever? Is there still the little bit of you that's holding on to the, but I'm still not as bad as that guy, maybe it'll get in. There's still a little part of you that says, well, then I'll do this, this, and this, and maybe I'll get in. I think if that despair is there, the psalmist is saying, don't ignore it and don't try to solve it. Instead, Give yourself over to salvation today. Confess your sin and identify with a Savior who is willing to forgive you. If there's any doubt, that's what we can claim. And like John says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God saves those who don't deserve it. Then we have verse two, part two, verses five through eight. In this, I'm going to focus in on God's love and forgiveness causes us to live differently. When we rightly understand God's love and forgiveness, we see a different life walked. Look down back in 5. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It's fascinating. There's two conditions here, um, one that precedes waiting on the Lord and one that follows it in verse 7 and 8. The first that precedes it, what comes immediately off, uh, out of the fact of the truth proclamations of the psalmist that then he can wait in the Lord is he says this, he says, it is first that I fear the Lord. A right understands to God's forgiveness is the state of fear. And this is the, estate, uh, the assumed 
position the psalmist has in declaring his waiting. He says, I can successfully wait on the Lord because I first fear God. When you talk about, we've talked about fearing God in its healthy form already before. You can go back a couple weeks into when we had the conversation of 1 Peter 2.17, where Chris talked about the fear of the Lord um, not being something that is inappropriate, as so oftentimes we want to make it inappropriate because we have a broken experience with fear and with relationships. That's not the case with God. This is a familial fear. This is a family-based fear. This is more akin to uh, a son and a father, where if the son disobeys, he knows he's not he knows he's not in good standing. He knows there's something wrong, but what is not in question is the ultimate relationship of the Father. He is still the Son, and the Father is going to be the one who can restore him. And so that is the same thing here. A couple other people, Chris isn't the only one who's smart enough to pick up on this, but a couple other people who are also smart enough. Um, Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, speaking of a filial fear, again, this, this father-son fear, he describes it as, it is that indefinable mixture of reference and pleasure joy and awe which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he's done for us. It is a love for God which is so great that we would be ashamed to do anything which would displease him or grieve him and makes us the happiest when we are doing what pleases him. Jerry Bridges expounds on it as well in another work. says this, realizing who God is and what he has done for us will elicit this biblical fear. As we grow in our understanding of God's love for us in Christ, we will more and more delight in the fear of the Lord. And that's his commentary when he was referencing Isaiah 11.3. With proper fear, we can wait rightly. And with proper fear, we can wait rightly. I wait on the Lord my soul waits. In his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. And it's also fascinating here, this Hebrew concept of waiting is certainly one that is not passive. Hebrew waiting is not passive, it is active. There is a response to take in this. The psalmist is waiting on the Lord to do what only he can do, and while waiting, he is seeking God's word. That's the active part of waiting. Wait, the active part of waiting is seeking God. And here we seek God through seeking His Word. His Word is what He longs for. It's God what He longs for. It's, again, the psalmist isn't, isn't waiting for his troubles to go away. He's not waiting for um, retribution of his enemies. He's not waiting for the deliverance of his immediate circumstances. What he is ultimately waiting for is he's waiting for God, and he is finding him in his word. That's why he could wait. I'm reminded of an illustration long ago I came across when I read um, uh, Sam Johnson's book. Sam Johnson was a, many of you all probably know, he was a, a Texas representative to the Congress. Um, for just under 20 years, he passed away uh, in 2020. Um, but before he served in Congress, he was an uh, Air Force pilot. Um, he served both in uh, the Korean War and in uh, the Vietnam War. And actually, um, during uh, his time in the Vietnam War, he was shot down over North Vietnam. Uh, he was taken prisoner. Um, he was made a prisoner of, award, of, of, uh, of war. And he um, spent seven years in this condition. And, uh, and in it, he describes that the vast majority of that time was enduring not only physical, uh, but also mental abuse by his captors. And he was, was, uh, was stored, I guess a better way of putting it, stored in a cell of isolation uh, that was only three foot by nine foot. Um, and he did that for the vast majority of his seven years of captivity. In his book, he recalls the temptation to turn to despair 
and to give up all in life and to find it all meaningless. And it was in that deepest, darkest moment that he says that it was only then dwelling on God's promises is what, what uh, kept his sanity and then what allowed him to endure such persecution. It took him getting to the place of persecution that then he finally understood the benefit of God's word that luckily he would say as a child, um, God's providence had for him to memorize scripture through singing and through memorization as a child. And he would not take credit for this. He says God brought that scripture back into his mind and that's the only reason he was able to endure captivity. This, I think, is the power of God's word when it comes to our waiting. When we long for God, we wait for God in his word. And then naturally, we want everyone else to experience the same. And this is what the psalmist does. Now he moves into a point of proclamation. He calls out to Israel, O Israel, hope in the Lord. With the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The psalmist calls for all of Israel to know the goodness of waiting on the Lord. The name that the psalmist used here is Yahweh. That's why it's Lord all uppercase. Um, as previous, it was Ananite, which was Lord undercase. But Yahweh here is the, uh, expresses the other holiness of God. It's his reserved covenantial um, language term for his name of the covenant that he is maintaining um, with those who love him and put faith in him. Um, this is a word so holy that uh, even the strictest of Hebrews or of Jews won't speak this aloud. Um, that's how serious this holiness and this covenant is of this name is essentially in their understanding. I can't preserve this covenant, only he can. I'm not holy, only he is. Thus, he's allowed to use that name to describe my covenant with him. I am not. This is a, a serious name, uh, and attached to it is this serious character, this covenantal God. The psalmist highlights is one that loves us. He has steadfast love. This love in Hebrew is called chesed, and it is the highest form of unconditional love. Um, this is oftentimes where it's, it's translated in the Old Testament as loving kindness um, and favor, loving or uncompromising favor. Um, this is that word. This is the Lord saying, this is who I am, and this is what I give to you. I give you an unwavering, unfailing, unsurpassing love. That is the love that I have to offer. And this love has secured here, according to the psalmist, redemption for us. This isn't just a cheap forgiveness. It's not that our sins are just forgotten. It's that they were paid for. He purchased them back. And he paid for them with the ultimate cost and expression of his love, himself, his son, dying on the cross for the, for the removal of our sins. This is the love he is offering. He has done the work, and now he offers the grace for us to participate. So those are the two things we have. We have a God who saves those who don't deserve it, and a God worth waiting on because he loves and he forgives. So I'm going to invite the team back up as they're going to close us um, in a time of invitation. And I don't know what it is, but I do pray that you do take this moment to respond to the Holy Spirit as he leads. If it is that, that you're like, you know what, I, I do have that despair if I'm honest with myself. I don't know my standing before a holy God. Then don't leave here today without asking who brought you here or finding somebody or coming up front and asking questions about what it is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. 
Or maybe it's also like for the believer, um, like me, that now has been faced with God's Word and has had this mixture of comfort and conviction. Um, let us not go amiss without balancing what do we need to do with those and what is the Lord trying to teach us. Or maybe you've been here for a while and you've, you've gone through the Welcome Home t- uh, Committee or you've, seen, you've met with Lance or one of his team uh, and you want to make the proclamation today that, yeah, I want to wait on the Lord with a bunch of dysfunctional family members like this. Let's do this all together. And if you want to make church membership known, this would be the time to do it. But whatever it is and however you need to, re- to respond, I- I'm going to invite you to stand. But feel free if you need to continue to sit or kneel or come forward or take whatever posture you need, take it uh, and just do the diligence with what the Lord is leading to you as we sing.